Welcome to Salem Alliance Church. For more information about this podcast and other resources, please visit us at salemalliance.org. This week's message is by Jennifer Roth. You know, as uh, Jeff was asking the question, how do we worship? Uh, The question that rose in me this week is, how do we respond? Uh, Because as Christ followers, as the body of Christ, as, as people who proclaim to be children of God, our response matters. What we say, what we do, it matters. And so I want to talk just a little bit about what our response is when our nation is in the situation that our nation is in, when it's in this place. And the first thing I want to say is that uh, Steve Fowler, our lead pastor, who um, is out of the country this weekend, has left a video knowing that the election would happen this week. And it's been up on Facebook this week. But if you're not on Facebook or if you hadn't had a chance to see that yet, it, there's a link to it on our church's web page with just some pastoral words from Steve about how we respond. Um, when our nation has had an election such as it has had following a whole election season. And, you know, I don't have to tell you this, but just to recap, we've had months now of, of information coming at us that is, that is based on fear and anger and division. And we're a part of a nation that is increasingly polarized in increasingly personal ways. And for many, this election became not about what they were voting for, but what they were voting against. And again, in very personalized ways. And in a group this size, as Jeff mentioned, we have the full range of response to what the result was this week. Our church most likely is a fairly accurate microcosm of our nation in how we might potentially be split in who we voted for or didn't vote for. The range of emotions could be fairly neutral. Some of you are just glad this is over, perhaps a little relieved or a little disappointed. Some of you are more impacted than that. You have some feelings about this. Perhaps you're glad or, or you're sad, but you have, you have some feeling about it. And others are passionate about this. There are those sitting here today who have strong or overwhelming feeling as a result of what happened this week in our elections. Some are thrilled. Some are appalled. Put whatever word you want to put to it in your own heart and your own mind. And it's those of you who are who have this passionate response going on in you or who are in relationship with people who have that passionate response going on in them that I want to address for just a minute. I want us to talk about two things. One is, how do we process these kind of feelings in a healthy, God-honoring way? And the second is, how do we live as the body of Christ in unity when many of us disagree with each other in pretty substantial ways? How do we do that? The first one I want to point us to the Psalms because the psalmist was amazing at dealing with real authentic feeling in God-honoring ways. And so the first thing we see from the psalmist that often they will start with, Lord, I feel. Lord, I feel. And they will bring their real, raw, authentic feelings to God. Out of the depths I cry to you, the psalmist will say, this is out of the true gut of how I feel. My soul refused to be comforted. Do you know people? Are you yourself someone who is sitting today with a soul that just refuses to be comforted wherever you sit? And you know, let me just say this. This isn't necessarily just about our political season. There are some of you who have gut-wrenching feelings coming up on completely separate things. 
Friends, I want us to know that God is not afraid of our feelings, God is not offended by our feelings, and God is not even disappointed in our feelings. God is the safe place to bring our feelings, our fears, our emotions, our passions. He is the place to bring those as is demonstrated by the psalmist. And yet what we also see the psalmist do is not stay there. The psalmist moves on to a place where he says, but Lord, you are. And the psalmist gives us this example of declaring the character that has come to be known true of God. Lord, you are righteous. Lord, you are loving. Lord, you are trustworthy. Lord, you are strong. He declares these things about God's character and he declares the things that God has done. Lord, you have rescued us from slavery. Lord, you have redeemed us from our sin. Lord, you have. And in this place of declaring who God is, he recalibrates himself even in light of the true feelings that have been been shared, he recalibrates himself in light of who God is. And from there, he's able to say, so I will. So I will. There's a response that comes up out of the true processing of feelings, the declaration of who God is, so I will. And we hear the psalmist say, so I will trust in the Lord. So I will wait on the Lord. So I will praise the Lord. These are things that rise up even out of places of insecurity and grief and anger. They rise up when we remind ourselves who God is. And then sometimes the psalmist even takes it a step farther. And I call others Two. We see an example of this in Psalm 130 when the psalmist cries out, O Israel, put your hope in the Lord, for with the Lord is unfailing love and with him is full redemption. And friends, unless we have done the personal process ourselves of acknowledging our feelings, bringing them to God, declaring who God is and what hope we have and walking in that hope, we are not prepared to offer hope or truth, or grace, or to be the salt and light of the world for the people who don't yet know God, unless we have walked this process ourselves. Only when we have walked that process, because then we say, oh Israel, put your hope in the Lord. Coming out of a soul that has truly done the work, because here's a couple mistakes that we make. A couple mistakes that we make when we're processing this level of feeling, whatever it might be about, is that we move too quickly to a statement of trust without processing what we really feel. We move too quickly past what's going on inside and we try to tell ourselves, oh, but I shouldn't be afraid, I should trust in God. Oh, but I shouldn't feel anger, I should forgive. And we move too quickly past what's rising up and sometimes we're pushing others to move too quickly past what they feel to declare this hope in God. And friends, we want to get to that place where we declare the hope in God. But if we get there without wrestling with what we really feel about what's going on and without processing what we really feel about what's going on, then we get there without true hope. And we get there without the compassion to help walk others to hope. We get there without the understanding. And we get there, quite frankly, oftentimes with false guilt because we're trying to put on a face for something we don't feel yet. We get there and what happens is we give pat answers and we use Bible verses like Band-Aids on a gaping wound. And friends, the world needs the Bible. The world needs the truth of God's hope, but it needs it from a people who have done the work in ourselves to authentically be meeting in a place of hope, not just saying, oh, I have hope in God because that's what I'm supposed to say. So let's not move too quickly. But the other mistake we make is that we don't ever move at all to that place of reaffirming our trust in God. We get caught in the loop of our feelings and our fears and our doubts and our what in the world were they thinking and the what in the world just happened and wow, what's their response about? And, and we get caught in this loop and we never move to the reaffirmation of our trust in God. 
And what happens then is that we get caught in the cycle of anger and cynicism and disillusionment. And we can actually become the skeptic who distrust those who have truly processed and landed in a place of trust, and we end up on the side of the skeptic. We want to avoid both of those mistakes as we process whatever we're feeling in a godly way. The second thing was this. Jesus said in John 13, 35, that the world would know that we are his followers by the way we love each other. They will know that we are Christ's followers by the way that we love And friends, it's really easy to love, to do those things in 1 Corinthians. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love keeps no record of wrong. It's easy to do those things when we agree with each other. It is a lot harder to do those things when we disagree, and we disagree as passionately as people in our nation disagree right now. So what do we do? How do we walk in love and unity as the body of Christ in a time such as this. And I wanna say that this is an opportunity. It's an opportunity, church, for us to demonstrate how the love and power and wisdom of Christ can take people who are polarized in their policies and their values and the things that have made up this election and make them into one body, his body, the body of Christ. And it happens when we submit ourselves to one Lord and everything else falls in submission to our alignment to him as king. It happens when we submit ourselves to his love and his highest calling, which is to love the Lord our God with all our soul, mind, strength, and to love others as ourselves. Friends, some of us just need to listen. There are people in your world, your workplace, your family, your friend circles, that you need to listen. You need to ask some questions. Seek to understand from their point of view. You might remember that in our Culture Shock series, we talked about the fact that the primary goal of communication is not agreement, it's understanding. And so as you have conversations coming out of this season that our nation is in, would you make it your primary goal not to make that person agree with you, but to understand where they're coming from? Because in trying to make each other agree, we're going to polarize even more. But in trying to understand, we're going to be able to start to be the body of healing. As we understand the story behind where people were coming from, where they were coming from to get to where they're at. Let's listen, let's ask questions, let's walk in love. Let's walk like Paul says in Ephesians. Be completely humble, be gentle, be patient, bearing with one another in love. And friends, can I say that unfortunately in our day and age and in our culture, the place that this primarily plays out is on social media. And can I just give you a strong, strong word to guard your social tongue, to examine every post that you make in light of loving God and loving your neighbor, and have the conversations that need to be had on a personal level off the screen where all eyes are watching to see how Christ followers are responding to the desolation, the pain, the division, the, the excitement, the all that it is. How are we responding to it? Let us not play into the hands of the enemy by increasing division by the things that we post on social media. We need to be a people who deal honestly with the feelings that we feel, who live in, walk in unity and submit ourselves primarily to Christ and to his commitment to be one as a body of Christ that is known by our love, and we need to lean into his word. You see, this word is the word that brings healing, that brings hope, that brings help, that brings wisdom and discernment for the, us to be able to know how to live in the times that we live. And so we lean into God's word, which is what we're gonna do together now. 
We've been in a series called Text Messaging, Minor Prophets, Major Messages. We're going to be talking about Haggai today. And to get us rolling, we're going to look at what was happening historically uh, when this message was given on this video here. The book of the prophet Haggai. It's one of the smaller prophetic books, but crucially important in the overall story of the Hebrew Bible. So for centuries, the Hebrew prophets had been accusing Israel of breaking their covenant with God through idolatry and injustice, and they warned that God would send the great empire of Babylon to take out Jerusalem, destroy the temple, and haul off the people into exile. And it all happened in the year 587 BC. But that wasn't the end of the story. The prophets also believed that there was still hope and that God would one day bring back a transformed remnant of his people Israel to live in a new Jerusalem where God's presence would live in their midst. Now when we turn to Haggai, the year is 520 BC, nearly 70 years after the exile. And the Babylonian Empire has recently collapsed and the world is now ruled by the Persians. Now they allowed the return of any exiled Israelites who wanted to go back to Jerusalem which still lay in ruins. And so under the leadership of a high priest named Joshua and Zerubbabel, an heir from the line of David, and a group of exiles, they all returned and began to rebuild the city and their lives. Remember the story from the book of Ezra chapters 1 to 6. So our hopes are high and the future seems very bright, but it's not actually, at least from Haggai's point of view. The book consists of four sections that summarize Haggai's message given to the people of Jerusalem over the course of four months. He opens by accusing the people of misplaced priorities. And so yes, they have come back to Jerusalem, but they're spending all of their time and resources rebuilding their own fancy houses, while the temple still lay in ruins from its destruction from 70 years ago. So Haggai asks, are your own houses really more important than your allegiance to God? This neglect, Haggai says, is tantamount to the covenant rebellion of their ancestors, which is why the land is still unproductive, why they've been struck with famine and drought. And here Haggai's quoting from the list of covenant curses in the book of Deuteronomy. And so Haggai's challenging words, they're followed by a story of the people's response. Remember also the story in Ezra chapter 5. We're told that Zerubbabel, Joshua, the remnant of the people were provoked by Haggai's message and they were motivated. They started rebuilding the temple. So we've got the story of a people in exile who are released to come back and rebuild their temple, which they want to do. And then the, the work gets stalled out and they, and they stop and the prophet comes and gives them a message. But before we want to dive into that message, I want to address the fact that sometimes text messages turn sideways. You know those times when you're looking at your screen and, and you can't hear the tone and you can't see the facial expressions of the person who's talking and so the message can turn sideways. Maybe you don't know the jargon very well. So for example, there was a, a mom and a daughter who were in a text message and the daughter had told her mom that someone dear to her had passed away. And the mom texted back and said, LOL. And the daughter said, mom, what do you think that means? Lots of love. No, mom, it means laugh out loud, which is a completely inappropriate message in light of what had just been told her. And the text message turned sideways. Or maybe you might not have known this. I've only recently heard it. But did you know that if you take just the letter K, so you're trying to say okay to someone, but you just say K instead, that that's like really rude, highly disrespectful, one of the biggest insults you could do to the texting generation. I, I'm sorry if I insulted any of you before I found that out. But you could be giving an insult based on the assumption of the person you're communicating with and, and you didn't even actually ever know it and the text message turns sideways. Or maybe it is a message that is clearly understandable like 
okay, you know, using both letters, so now you're not disrespecting anybody. You say, okay, and one person might hear that as, okay, what you just said is fine, and that works. But if another reader is putting maybe some sarcasm to your tone and anticipating a little bit of snark, they might hear, okay, fine, we always do what you want, we never get to do what I want, but sure, fine, whatever you want, okay. <laughs> and the text message turns sideways. Or even, hold on. One person might hear that as, oh, they mean, I'm busy right now, but I want to acknowledge you because I care about you, so just hold on a second. And somebody else might hear that as, oh, sure, like, I don't even have a life. Like, hold on, I can just hear your texts all day long. Give me a break. Right? Our text messages can turn sideways when we don't have the full story and we're making up stories in our head about what the person means based on our filters and the way that we're receiving those. Or maybe you send the text to the wrong person, as happened to one of my nephews. I have a plethora of nephews. I love them all. They're fantastic. They have a text strand that's an ongoing text strand that's full of, shall we call it, brotherly love. Um, they're often ribbing on each other, ripping on each other. They, they just, it's, it's abusive, but it's loving abuse. And most of it has to do with fantasy basketball, quite frankly. Who's on whose team? What trade needs to be made? Who's terrible? Who's horrible? Which team is beating whose team and losing and all this kind of thing? So there was this one time a while back that one of the nephews thought he was in the text strand with his girlfriend, but he was actually in the text strand with his cousins, and he texted, unfortunately for him, uh, miss you bad, babes. <laughs> Quickly followed up by an, oh no, <laughs> which was accurate and oh no, because then what followed was, you know, the brotherly love, aka abuse of all the people making fun of him. And then, of course, with that one, there's the next time you're in person, there's the, huh, miss you bad, babes. You know, hard to get over that one. Especially when your aunt then uses it as a method, message and then your cousins are reminded that you did it a long time ago and she just stirs up the whole thing, the painful process. But the text message turns sideways. And I've got to tell you, that's what happened to me when I read Haggai. The text message turned sideways for me. And I want to unpack that with you today. So we're going to start in Haggai chapter 1. It's on page 1,485 in your pew Bible if you want to follow along. It's just a two-chapter book, and I'm going to read uh, chapter 1, verses 1 through 11 to get us going here. On August 29th of the second year of King Darius's reign, the Lord gave a message through the prophet Haggai to Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Jeshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. You might have noticed that the video called him Joshua. Apparently, both of those names were appropriate for him. This is what the Lord of Heaven's army says. The people are saying, the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the Lord sent this message through the prophet Haggai. Why are you living in luxurious houses while my house lies in ruins? This is what the Lord of Heaven's army says. Look at what's happening to you. You've planted much but harvest little. You eat but are not satisfied. You drink but are still thirsty. You put on clothes but cannot keep warm. Your wages disappear as though you were putting them in pockets filled with holes. If you were to bring this to modern day, you might say they were in a pretty major recession. This is what the Lord of Heaven's army says. Look at what's happening to you. Now, go up into the hills, bring down timber, and rebuild my house. Then I will take pleasure in it and be honored, says the Lord. You hoped for rich harvests, but they were poor. And when you brought your harvest home, I blew it away. Why? Because my house lies in ruins, says the Lord of Heaven's armies, while all of you are busy building your own fine houses. 
It's because of you that the heavens withhold the dew and the earth produces no crops. I have called for a drought on your fields and hills, a drought to wither the grain and grapes and olive trees and all your other crops, a drought to starve you and your livestock to ruin everything you have worked so hard to get. Friends, these are hard words. These are harsh words. And none of us read scripture in a vacuum. We read scripture with our own filters and our own story and backstory and we read it with this and the text message can turn sideways because for me, you may or may not remember that I've confessed before, we'll probably confess again that I'm a recovering perfectionist. What that means is my former life goal was to never make a mistake, to always do the right thing. So I have a really hard time, I have had a hard time with correction because to receive correction implies that I made a mistake. And if you imply that I made a mistake, then I'm not meeting my life goal. And if I'm not meeting my life goal, then all is at a loss. And so we can sometimes have this sense that I'm either all bad or I'm all good. Either I'm perfect and I'm doing what I'm supposed to and I'm anticipating what the right thing is to do in every situation, what the right thing is that God would want me to do and I do it perfectly and therefore I'm good. Or I make a mistake and somebody has to correct me and I am all bad. And part of what needs to happen in our hearts and minds is the awareness that it, it takes courage to live in the tension of recognizing that nothing about us is all good and yet nothing about us is all bad either. We live under the redemption and the righteousness of Jesus Christ and yet we are broken human beings who have a sin nature and will be sinful until Jesus comes again and returns for us although our sin is forgiven, covered completely and we have an eternity with him if we have put our hope and our trust in him. So when I read this through that filter, all I hear is harshness. All I hear is a mad God telling a bad group of people that they're doing bad things and so bad things are gonna happen to them. I hear God asking a question. You know, in this series, we've kind of said, what's the text message that this prophet might be sending to us as a people? And the question I hear is, whose house are you building? That's the text message I think we received from Haggai. Whose house are you building? And yet the tone I hear it in is, whose house are you building? Whose house are you building? And that doesn't line up with the God of love and mercy and grace that is in my theology. And so I struggle with passages like this. So in getting ready to preach and for the sermon, I turn back to Ezra. You may have noticed in that video, he said that Ezra chapters one through six is where the story is told about what was happening in this place when this message was given. And as I read Ezra, and as I got the story of what was happening, I began to see a different side of this message. Because what I saw in Ezra was that the people who were returning from exile were eager to rebuild the temple. Their hearts were set towards the thing that God's heart was set towards. As a matter of fact, they were so willing that they made voluntary personal offerings towards the rebuilding of this temple. They gave financially, they had skin in the game to see this temple rebuilt. In spite of their fear of the local residents, they followed the law. They rebuilt the altar and sacrificed burnt offerings. They celebrated the festivals described in the law. And when they finished the foundation, they held this great celebration and they were praising God because they finished the foundation. Ezra was giving me a picture of a people who wanted to do what God wanted them to do. My first reading of Haggai had given me a picture of a people who were rebellious and willfully and wantonly going against what God wanted them to do. And yet Ezra gives me a, people, a picture of a people with a willing heart, a humble heart, a generous heart. 
And what rises up is enemy opposition. And even against that enemy opposition, these people continue to persevere. But over time, the fear and the discouragement coming from the opposition coupled with a message from a new king. It was King Cyrus who told them to go and gave them permission to rebuild the temple. Their new enemies, a new king came to power, and their enemies sent a letter to that king, and the king sent a letter back that said, stop building the temple. Friends, on first reading of Haggai, we can think that these people, they just got distracted, or they quit, or they got lazy. They were told by the king of the empire to stop doing what they were doing. And have you and I ever started something with a willing heart, a heart lined up with God and a desire to follow his call in our life, only to face fear and discouragement and opposition and and eventually a, a closed door, a brick wall, a stopping place that we don't feel we have the authority to go through. And that's where these people were at when the message of Haggai came to them. And it tells us both in Ezra and in Haggai that as soon as the prophets gave the message, the people returned to work on the temple. These weren't people dragging their feet. These were people whose heart was still towards the temple who had been set off track by their fear and their discouragement and the opposition of others. And then I read in Ezra chapter six, a verse that absolutely turned my, turned my brain. It says, so the Jewish elders continued their work and they were greatly encouraged by the preaching of the prophets Haggai and Zechariah. <laughs> What I read as harsh condemnation, they heard as encouragement. These people who were living the story that they're in heard as encouragement, and it made me go back to Haggai and read it again with new eyes and ask God, okay, God, if my filters led me to hear it this way, and yet the life that they were living led it to be encouragement to them, then how can I look at this different? What's a different perspective on what you've said than what I assumed to begin with? And friends, there are times when you and I need to go back to God and say, I think I missed the boat. I think I made an assumption about your character. I think I I made a guess about where you were leading me and and I've become cynical and disillusioned and and I think I need to come back and ask you for a new and a fresh perspective on this one because I don't think that your text message perhaps meant what I thought it meant to begin with. And so as I looked back at Haggai again, knowing the backstory, I found a people whose desire for God's presence and that presence being represented in the temple was alive and well and on fire. I found the verses that I found to be condemning, these verses about the curses, all these bad things are happening to you. Well, they were actually a list of the covenant curses from Deuteronomy. Back in Deuteronomy, God had said, here's the covenant. If you follow me, I will do this blessing. And if you don't follow me, then there will be these curses. So instead of a capricious God who's just acting on a whim and doing what he wants and starving people, what if, what if there were these people in Jerusalem who had left exile with high hopes and high promises to go rebuild the temple? And when they got there, they faced such opposition and such closed doors that they were forced to stop the thing that was in their heart to do. And in the meantime, they didn't have enough food for their families. They didn't have clothes to keep themselves warm. And they're wondering, where is God? What is going on here? Who will rescue us? And into that situation comes Haggai, whose words now of correction Remind them of the covenant. And there's this aha moment of, oh, 
This is happening because our nation has disobeyed God for so long that until this temple is rebuilt and God's presence is reestablished in this place and in our midst, we're gonna have these hardships. And when God is reestablished on his throne, then the hardships will cease. What if what I heard as condemnation was actually hope in the form of, I hate to say it, correction. God actually tells us to receive his correction and his discipline as his love because he's calling us up to a way of life that we were created for, that we are destined for, and that is truly the best way to live. And so I find these people wanting God's presence, living and understanding their covenant, and being encouraged by the word of God. And I find that when I hear it as a condemnation, my defenses rise up and I can't hear truth. But when I hear the rest of the story and I'm able to receive a different character in a heart and I have a different perspective, suddenly I can be receptive to the truth that God is teaching us in this text message. And I can hear that question, whose house are you building? Not as a condemnation, but as an invitation. Because friends, here's what I believe about us. I believe if we ask this question, whose house are you building? that by and large, the majority of us in this room would say, God's. We want to be building God's house, unequivocally, hands down. It is God's house that we want to build. And yet, as we go through our daily life, whether it's through fear or discouragement or closed doors, sometimes we find ourselves off the path. And I have a few questions to ask us today to help us kind of examine where are we on this journey of being a people who will invest in God's kingdom and build God's house as opposed to building our own. Because that's truly the call of Haggai, that we would set aside building our own foundation and home and structure and build into God's kingdom. And so the first question I have is, are you investing in the kingdom of God? Are you investing in the kingdom of God? See, we need to examine our personal priorities because where we invest our time, our energy, our resources, which include our skills and our finances, the things that God has given us, our relationships, our networking, where we invest those, that's the house that we're building. And so are you investing in the kingdom of God or are you investing in your own kingdom? Is your most High priority investment, the safety and security of your family? Is your most high priority investment the image maintenance so that you impress the people you want to impress? Is it actually entertainment so that you're not bored and you have things to do? What are you investing in and is it God's kingdom? My second question is, are you inviting God's presence? See, when we take the reality of the temple from Haggai and we translate it into New Testament theology, what we find is that we are the temple of the living God. That at the time of Haggai in Israel, in Jerusalem, there was a physical building on a physical place and God's presence inhabits that place. Even back at the time of the tent of meeting, when they first in the desert built the tabernacle, when they built the Holy of Holies and God's presence came, there was a physical sense of God's presence. And when Solomon finished the first temple in 1 Kings chapter 7, there was a physical reality of God's presence coming and inhabiting that place. And yet Paul tells us that under the new covenant of Christ, God's presence inhabits you and it inhabits me. 2 Corinthians 6.16, for we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will live in them and walk among them and I will be their God and they will be my people. 
In 1 Corinthians, he put it this way, don't you realize that all of you together are the temple of God and that the spirit of God lives in you? So friends, if we are gonna be a people who are rebuilding the temple, we need to ask ourselves the question, are we investing, are we inviting God's presence? Are we inviting God's presence? The third question is, are you inclined toward grace? Are you inclined towards grace? When we read all these covenant curses in Haggai that are taking place because the people are not doing as God called them to do, there's this sense of heaviness and foreboding and do what God says or else. But Paul clearly tells us in the New Covenant, in the New Testament, that we're not under the same covenant anymore. Galatians 3, verse 13 and 14 But Christ has rescued us from the curse pronounced by the law. When he was hung on the cross, he took upon himself the curse for our wrongdoing. For it is written in the scriptures, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. Through Christ Jesus, God has blessed the Gentiles with the same blessing he promised to Abraham so that we who are believers might receive the promised Holy Spirit through faith. Friends, we are not under the covenant of if, then, you do this, God does this, the blessing and the curses. We are under the covenant of Christ did it all, met all the requirements of the first covenant, became the curse for us so that we didn't have to live under that if-then covenant anymore. We live under a covenant of grace that says Christ is all, is in all, and through all, and he is the one who does it all for us. And so are we inclined towards that grace, or are we a people building a house still under the law? Are we trying to make ourselves and the people we are responsible for live by a certain behavioral pattern so that they can live up to the standards of God? Because friends, I have a message for you. We can't live up to the high standards of God. That's why he sent Jesus. And so we build our house under grace. We build our house with the awareness that we want righteousness. We want to obey God. Our hearts are towards him. We want to submit to him. And yet we know we cannot do it except that we accept the righteousness that Christ has given us and we live in his grace day by day. It says the old written covenant ends in death, but under the new covenant, the spirit gives us life. Are we inclined toward grace? It astounded me as God changed my perspective on Haggai that the words that I had received as condemnation, the people who were receiving them received as encouragement. That when we know God's heart and we know the story and we're living in the place that is the reality, we receive God's challenge, his correction as our own encouragement. I love even in Haggai chapter one, verse 14, it says, once they had begun to obey, the Lord sparked the enthusiasm of all the people. See, when once we obey him, he will give us what we need to carry out the task that he gives us. Encouragement, enthusiasm, courage, hope, faith, trust. God will meet us in that place. Haggai 2, 4 and 5 says it this way. Be strong, all you people still left in the land, and now get to work. For I am with you, says the Lord of heaven's armies. My spirit remains among you just as I promised when you came out of Egypt. So do not be afraid. This God who loves us, this God who challenges us, this God who doesn't let us sit in our discouragement and our fear and against brick walls and closed doors, who calls us into action again, is also the God who is with us. And he tells us, do not be afraid. And so here's my final question for us today as we consider whose house are we building? Are you inspiring hope? 
Are you a person whose words and actions and your presence in the relationships and your spheres of influence, are you inspiring hope in the living God? And as we close, I want to say this. As a church, Salem Alliance, I know you. I know your heart. I say that because there are many of you I have known for many, many years personally. And I say that because those of you I don't know personally, as a corporate body, Salem Alliance has a personality and a character, a generous, God-fearing, honest, obedient character. And so I wanna say this as a declaration to you. As we look at our list of questions, I wanna say that you are a people investing in the kingdom of God. Friends, you are inviting God's presence and you are inclined towards grace and you are and you will be inspiring hope. Salem Alliance Church is a community of Jesus followers located in downtown Salem, Oregon. And we are passionate about our city being a city at peace with God. If you have a request that we could pray for, please email us at prayers at salemalliance.org. You can view today's entire service online at livestream.com backslash Salem Alliance.